when we realize uh, minor prophet again of Amos and minor prophet again. Well, we must trust in the providence of God that He has something to say to us. And I want to encourage you that it is a much shorter minor prophet and that there is a great piece of truth right at the end. Okay, and, and, and it will be worth persevering through to get to the end of Zephaniah where something unique about what our salvation is all about uh, is revealed in Zephaniah chapter 3. So when I, when I think of Zephaniah, I think of Mark's second son, I think of Zephi. You know, like before I started looking at this passage, you say Zephaniah, I think of that cute boy that says to me, Hello, Uncle Y. Um, and I also think of a sermon that I heard in 2011. Uh, one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Uh, it was given by Mike Bullmore at the Gospel Coalition Conference. And after so many years, I can still remember uh, the introduction. So I'm going to shamelessly use this introduction uh, for this sermon. Okay, so this is Mike Bullmore's introduction. And he quotes the beginning of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, it is said that apart from the Bible, the most uh, printed book is Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, and this is the introduction. Uh, you might know that John Bunyan is writing about this person called Christian. Okay, and so this is the way John Bunyan begins. As I was walking through the wilderness of this world, I came to a place where I laid down to sleep. And as I slept, I had a dream in which I saw a man dressed in rags. Now this is Christian. And he's standing in a certain place, facing away from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. And I looked, I saw him open the book and read out of it. And as he read, he wept and trembled. Unable to contain himself any longer, he broke up with a cry saying, What shall I do? He went home in this state of mind, but restrained himself as long as he could, so that his wife and children would not notice his distress. But he could not be silent for long, because his troubled feeling was getting worse. And he finally revealed to his wife and children what was going on in his mind, saying, Oh, my, my dear wife and children, I'm suffering from such turmoil because of a burden that's heavy upon me. And, and what's worse, I've been informed that our city will be burned with fire from heaven. In that fearful disaster, I, with you, my wife and my sweet children, we will come to a miserable ruin unless some way of escape may be found. Now his family members were deeply troubled, but not because they believed what he said, but because they thought that some form of insanity had gotten into his head. And so because it was night, they quickly got him into bed, hoping that sleep would settle his brain. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. And for that reason, instead of sleeping, he spent it sighing and weeping. And when morning came, they wanted to know how he was, and he told them, worse. He started talking to them again, but they began to be hardened against his words, 
they thought they might be able to drive away his insanity by harsh and bad-tempered behavior towards him. And so sometimes they would make fun of him, sometimes they would criticize him, sometimes they would just simply ignore him. And so because of this, he would withdraw from them to his bedroom to pray for them, to pity them, and to comfort his own misery. He could also be found walking by himself in the fields, reading and praying. And he spent his time doing these things for several days. And he was greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What must I do? Now, we can imagine that some people, as they hear this story of Christian Day, can easily think the problem is the book. Just put away that book. And the book is causing so much distress, so much misery. Just put it away. I mean, the, the, the wrath that is to come, what's that? I mean, you want to make yourself better, feel better, look at magazines. There's movies. There's even K-pop concerts. Huh? Never chill. You know, there's, there's all these things to, to, to make you feel better and, and, and be entertained. Put away that book. Now, unless, Unless what the book says turns out to be true. Unless what the book says is really true. And the, the magazines and the movies and the K-dramas, all that is designed to keep us trapped in a make-believe world. And this book that Christian is reading is the Bible. And... You know, you could very well imagine that the particular portion of the book that he was reading, the book of Zephaniah. Because Zephaniah warns of the wrath that is to come. He warns of the day of the Lord coming and drawing near. And you see, it's important for us to hear this. To hear this again and again. Because so many of us are tempted to live as if the end is not coming. So many of us are tempted to live as if what the magazines and the movies and all those things are saying are real. We are tempted to be trapped in that make-believe world that all these things are, are, are the delusion that they are giving. So we need to hear Zephaniah's message to know that the end is coming and to us with equal intensity as Christian. What must I do? What must I do? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word of warning. And we pray, Father, that you, by your spirit, may so work in our hearts that we would approach and respond to this word as we ought. Only you can convict us of the truth within your word that we may see, have the right response and take the appropriate action. We ask this so that we may be saved and that you might be glorified. Thank you, Father. Amen. Now, you might find the outline in the bulletin helpful. Now, you, when you look at it, you will see that the first and last point is called uncreation. I will explain what that is. But 
as I look at this chapter, I see that these two points at the beginning at the end serve as bookends, okay, surrounding this whole chapter. And right in the middle are the three charges that God lays against his people. Okay, so first, uncreation. But before we get there, we must ask who was Zephaniah? Now, all that we know about Zephaniah is contained in the first verse. And we see that he traces his lineage all the way to Hezekiah. Now this must be Hezekiah, the good king of Judah. If not, why would he bother mentioning it? Now when did Zephaniah prophesy? Now remember we just did Amos and Amos was prophesying that the Assyrians would come and invade Israel, the northern kingdom. And that happened in 722 okay, BC. Now Zephaniah is prophesying about a hundred years after that. Okay, so 100 years after the fall of Israel, uh, Zephaniah is sent to prophesy to Judah. And it's during the reign of King Josiah, uh, another good king. And most likely this is just before King Josiah discovers the book of Deuteronomy uh, in the temple and begins his reform. So Zephaniah's prophecy would have aided King Josiah's reforms and would have held back the judgment. But because the people you know, only repented for a short while, the judgment that Zephaniah prophesizes would eventually come on Judah. Now, Josiah's grandfather is uh, Manasseh, or was Manasseh, and he's one of the most wicked of all of Judah's kings. Uh, he was the one that led the people into Baal worship, and it's recorded that he even sacrificed his son uh, in the fire to Molech uh, as a sacrifice. So this is the, the sort of period history that uh, Zephaniah is prophesying in. Look at how God begins this book. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <laughs> what a beginning. He just comes and he says, right, unrelenting, unremitting, I will sweep away everything. The judgment that's described here is judgment on a global scale. Right? Just like the flood back in Genesis. God says, I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Now you see, when it's mentioned here, man, beast, birds, fish, it's listed in the exact opposite order of the creation account in Genesis. So the, the idea here is that God, the Creator, is coming and He's beginning to undo creation. He's beginning to reverse creation. Now, this judgment that comes, which is a uncreation, a reversing of creation, is even worse than the flood. Because at the flood, at least the fish survived. right? But here, God says even the fish will be swept away. Now this theme of uncreation is matched by the, the book end at the end, in verses 14 to 18. So turn to verses 14 to 18, and this judgment is given a name. It's called the day of the Lord. Right? Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. So this, this global 
devastating judgment. It's given a name. It will happen on the day of the Lord. And in verses 15 to 16, this day is described. Okay, look at verse 15 to 16. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. Now commentators have noticed that uh, Zephaniah uses six days to describe what, what this great day of the Lord will be like. He uses six days as an echo again of Genesis 1. God created in six days, but this day of the Lord where God sends His judgment, where He pours out His wrath, is six days of judgment, which again is God coming, God the Creator reversing, undoing His creation. Because everything is so contaminated by sin that God will decreate, He will uncreate and start over. Now we've come across this day of the Lord in Amos. And when we were at Amos, the day of the Lord referred to, in one sense, the day when the Assyrian army would come as an instrument of God and punish his people, Israel. So there was that day, you know, back in 722. And then now in Zephaniah, in about 620-something, Zephaniah is prophesying of this, this day coming again. And this time it will be the Babylonians who will come in and invade Judah, crush Jerusalem, destroy the temple. And it would happen in about 586. So there was a day back in 72, 722. There's another day in 786. So this is the way it is. There are all these uh, days, small d, right? Small d days. But all these days are actually a foretaste of the greater capital D day foretaste of that day when God finally and fully sends out His judgment, pours out His wrath. And it is a day when all unrepentant people will face His anger. So verse 18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. So this is the message of the book that Christian was reading. There is a judgment coming. And God warns us, warns us today of this judgment coming by telling us of the judgment that he uh, warned his people Judah about back in the 7th century. And uh, like Christian's wife and children, so many of us, so many people that's around us, we have this tendency and inclination to ignore or play down judgment. Now for non-Christians, for people who don't believe in God or they believe in some ultimate being, they might play down judgment by simply ignoring or denying any notion. God is, God is utterly loving. How can a loving God, you know, uh, 
pour out this sort of judgment on his people. No, no, there must be salvation. There must be, God must do good to us. Okay, so that's the, the non-Christians. They completely deny God's judgment. But even within the Christian camp, there's a tendency to play down. There's a tendency to make hell less hot. And there are a few ways people try to do that. Uh, this so-called Christian leader and author called Rob Bell, he's tried to reinterpret hell by saying that hell is not this ultimate place of judgment, but when the Bible speaks of hell, it's talking about various hells on earth. So because of sin, we do bad things to people, and when they experience those bad things, the consequences of our sin, that's the hell that they face. You know, various hells on earth. Uh, other Christians will speak of uh, or ascribe to a sort of universalism, which is everyone will be saved in the end. Okay, now there's various ways that people do that. Um, okay, there's no time to go into it. But uh, the Pope, our, 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 the present Pope, uh, by his writings and the things he said, um, actually shows himself to subscribe to some form of universalism. Uh, that, you know, people in various faiths can still find salvation at the end. Then there are other Christians who see that the Bible does talk about hell, but they, they want to say that this hell is short. That at the end, when God judges, yes, these people will be judged, they'll be sent to hell, but hell is a, a snuffing out. It's an annihilation. They are judged, they are sent to hell, but God will judge them and cause them to cease to exist. They'll be snuffed out. Right? So there will not be conscious, eternal torment. Okay, so they make hell short, and therefore hell becomes less hot. Right? The judgment is not as bad. Right? I just cease to exist. Now, but what does the book say? What does the book say? Now, because it's what the book says that counts. Right? Not, not what I want to think about hell, not what our society might find acceptable about hell. Now, we don't have the time to go into detail, but the, the available evidence, the available uh, scriptural data in the book, tells us that hell is a real place. That rather than annihilation, the evidence points to eternal conscious punishment. So not just snuffing out, ceasing to exist, but those who are unrepentant, who refuse to worship God, who are against Him and have not come to Christ for salvation because it's the way, the truth, and the life. They will be judged justly for their sins against God. And they will be sent to this place, a real place called hell, where there will be conscious, eternal torment. Now, it's not what I would choose because I have people I care about who uh, at this moment, are uh, outside of Christ, and unless something changes, they, that's what they're destined for. 
But it's not up to me to make what God has told us into something that's acceptable to me. It's not up to me to evaluate whether what God, God's justice, God's idea of punishment, that's, that's, that's acceptable or not. It's up to us to look at that and to fear and to tremble at His Word and to ask, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Now, Zephaniah, in this chapter, warns us of certain behaviors, certain attitudes that, uh, in Judah's case, attracted God's judgment. So let's see what are the charges that God lays out against His people. So verses 4 to 6, the charge of idolatry. The charge of idolatry. He says, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry hosts, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. Now notice, the people are worshipping pagan gods. They are worshipping idols. And in verse 5, it says that they bow down and worship even the starry host. They worship creation. And they bow down and swear by the Lord. And also swear by Molech. Right? So it's not as if that they have totally denied God. They have been uh, trying to entertain keeping God together with idols. And verse 6, they end up turning back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. So if we, if we think that this is God referring to the same people, then you see in verse 5 that these people are willing to bow down. Right? They're willing to bow down, they're willing to swear by the Lord. But in verse 6, they are refusing they are unable to follow, to seek, or inquire of God. In other words, the simple, ritualistic, religious actions they are able to do. Right? So they, they bow down, they prostrate, they swear, they, they use God's name. But the, the weightier, the deeper, the true expression of faith in the one God, of following, seeking, inquiring of Him, they do not do because they are entertaining idols in their hearts. So just like many Christians who are meeting in church you know, all over the world today, many do not have problems coming for service. Like dressing up a bit, coming, you know, doing the religious thing, participating in the Lord's Supper, having their names on the roster somewhere. But so often it is on that fundamental level of inquiring, you know, that the, the asking God, what is your will? What is your view? What do you have to say on this of, of seeking Him and of seeking to follow Him? That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where many are proven to uh, not really have a genuine faith in God. 
And the reason for this is idolatry. Because so many worship other gods in their hearts. Now I want to make an assumption. And the assumption is that all of us suffer from some form of idolatry or another. So I'm not asking, like, do you have idolatry in your heart? Because the assumption that I have based on my own heart and the, the people I've interacted with is everyone. Everyone has some form of idolatry in our hearts. And so the question is not, do you suffer from idolatry? But the question is, what is your idol? Or what are your idols? Now, an idol is not you know, just that statue, because you know, few of us here would be tempted to physically bow down, right? There are, I know, like you know, my mother-in-law tells me of her friends who, you know, those who go to church, but then also can be found in a temple praying for the kids' exam. No, no, okay, okay. It's those really the extreme case. But an idol is not just a statue that we physically bow down to. Right, an idol is anything that has taken the place of God in our hearts. And it can be a good thing. Like family, friends, relationship. Right? It, it, it can be a good thing, but it has become a God thing in our hearts. It's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. So how do you know which are the idols that you are tempted to worship right now. See, an idol is whatever you look to to give you the meaning, the value, or the security, or the significance that only God was meant to give. So, for example, <clears throat> you imagine two people working in the same job side by side. You know, maybe they are colleagues. Uh, ten years they've been sitting side by side. It's, it's a good job. They're enjoying the job. But they, are, they both get retrenched. For one, of course, he's sad, but he, he deals with it, he gets over it, <clears throat> and starts looking for another job. <clears throat> but the other person, because he's lost that job, he is devastated. Right? He, he cannot get out of bed, he's, he's like going to depression. Why is that? Because for the second person, that job or, or the security that the job brings or, or the status of that job, that has become for the second person an idol. See, for the first person, I mean, he's just sad, that's natural, but he gets over it. It shows that that job is not his idol. It could be something else, but it's not that job. For the second person, because he's so devastated by the loss of that thing, it shows that that thing was his idol. So that's one of the ways we can like, honestly ask ourselves, what, what are the idols we are being tempted right now to bow down before? What, what is it that, that if we were to lose today, would cause us not just to be sad, but to be devastated? And we need to seek to demolish the idol, not just by sheer willpower, but by seeking God. Right, by, by, by going to God and like, you know, the, the meaning and the fulfillment and the security that we are being tempted to find in that idol, we must go to God, look at God in His glory and His beauty and His majesty and see, begin to see and allow the Holy Spirit to see that, hey, 
that idol cannot give me that. Only this God who is revealed in Scripture, who is this glorious, who has made such marvelous promises to me, only this God has the ability and the power to give me that fulfillment and security and significance that my heart seeks. Only this God. So begin to replace the idols in my heart by the exalting of God in our sight. <clears throat> it's, <clears throat> it's okay for iPhone to have an iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus, but God says it's not okay to have a God Plus. I had to put that in somehow. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, the iPhone is for quite a few people, the idol, right? Yeah, okay. So, you know, get rid of it, right? Okay, the, the, the second charge is uh, corruption, or maybe better phrased, uh, compromise. Now, this is the first command in verse 7 that we see in the whole chapter. God says, be silent. Be silent before the sovereign Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those He has invited. First command says, be silent. Come and approach God in silence. Come and approach Him in awe. Come because you are coming before the one who has your life in His hands. Come in silence because there is no objection you can raise. And when the people come, the Lord is preparing a sacrifice. He is consecrating those He has invited. Now normally, it's the people who must prepare the sacrifice. It's the people who must consecrate themselves. But here, on this day, it is the Lord who is doing all these things. Because the sacrifice will be a sacrifice of these people. Verse 8, On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials, the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. Right, he's singling out the leaders. And this thing about being clad in foreign clothes is, I mean, what's the deal about that? You know, must they all made, must they all wear made in Jerusalem clothes? I mean, is that the thing, you know, because they don't want to give, uh, you know, foreign currency to Assyria or Philistine or whatever. No, the, the wearing of foreign clothes is symbolic of having foreign values and foreign influences. So these leaders have compromised. In their leadership, there's been corruption because it's been compromised by foreign influences, foreign values. Now, verse 9, <clears throat> no one really knows what stepping on the threshold is all about because the Hebrew word is obscure. So commentators have various things to say. But whatever it is, it's something bad, uh, and the Lord is going to punish. Now, the next charge is much clearer. So go to verses 10 to 13, where it's a charge of complacency. But before that, verse 10 and 11, the Lord says, On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter and a loud crash from the hills. Will you who live in the market district, all your merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. So there will be a cry from the fish gate. And the gate is at the perimeter of Jerusalem. 
There's going to be wailing from the new quarter, which is going to be inside the city. It's going to be a loud crash from the hills, which is like the, the, the suburbs of Jerusalem. And there's going to be wailing in the market district. The picture is when the Babylonians come. I mean, where are they going to be? And the picture here is they're going to be everywhere. Everywhere. There's not one place that's going to be spared. There's going to be wailing, there's going to be crying, there's going to be crashing all over the city. Everyone will be wiped out. And verse 12, the Lord says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent. God is on a search and destroy mission. He's, he's, he's coming with lamps, and the picture is there's no one who is going to be able to hide. And it's coming against the complacent. And it's uh, described as those who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. So the, the particular sin of complacency is uh, highlighted. And they are being compared to wine left on its dregs. So you know that wine, during its fermentation process, it needs to be uh, left unmoved. And then the sediments you know, will, will form and it will sink to the bottom. And you need to leave it unmoved. You, you can't shake it so that the dregs can sink down to the bottom so that the wine can age properly and you can get good wine. So this... And not, not shaking, not moving, is being applied to the complacent. Because the, pla- the complacent are just like that. They're inactive. They're not, they're not moved. Their hearts are not moved for God. They are spiritually stagnant. They are indifferent. They just don't care. And end up floating to the bottom. And the reason why they are inactive, the reason why they don't care, is because they think the Lord will do nothing. So why should I do something? The Lord will do nothing. He will do nothing either good or bad. And so the warning here is a warning for God's people today against this complacency. Right? Are, are we... You know, like where in our lives are we also spiritually stagnant, where we are inactive or indifferent? You know, where we, where we, we may not say it, but you know, but it's there in the back of our minds that, you know, this, this God, He's not going to help the righteous. He's not doing anything against the wicked. You know, my, my, my wicked colleague is getting promoted ahead of me. So, so why should I, why should I, you know, uh, struggle so hard to, to walk the straight and narrow? But it's not going to attract God's help, you know, to help me advance my career, you know. And in fact, the wicked are prosper, uh, prospering uh, faster than me. Or we can be tempted to prayerlessness. Or we can you can be tempted to think, why pray? My prayer is not not going to do anything. Not nothing good is going to come out of prayer. And so we go from, you know, saying grace at meals to. You know, going for days and then months without really praying, without really engaging with God in prayer, without really seeking God, without really pouring our heart before Him and turning our anxieties into prayer. Because we think the Lord will do nothing. 
Right? Prayerlessness is a good sign for some of us that we may have slipped into this complacency. That, that in this, in Judah's case, it's attracting this sort of language and judgment from the Lord. Now we can uh, also show its symptoms in our thinking about, you know, why read the Bible? Why, why spend time studying it? Why take in its words? Why meditate on it? Why have its, its, its words in my heart? Nothing good is going to come from it. And, and nothing bad is going to happen if I neglect it. I mean, I've, I've been neglecting it for weeks now, months now, and nothing good has, nothing good has come, nothing bad will happen. And why, why confess? Why confess my sin? Or if there's trouble in my marriage, why seek help? Why go to, you know, more mature couples, seek their help, seek, you know, what, input from the Bible? Why, why? Why bother confessing? Why bother seeking help for these issues? Nothing good is going to come out of it. It'll still continue to be like that. You see, God is angry and He is promising judgment on such attitudes. See, when we have such attitudes, we, we are becoming practical atheists. We can say we believe in God, but we live as if He doesn't exist. Or we can say we believe in God, but how much evidence is there in our life that we really do? So we may think that our sins are small, trivial, and maybe quite harmless. But God, in His Word, makes it clear that He is coming in judgment against all these sins. God promises that judgment is coming, and it is coming on all those who are unrepentant. Now this is this is this is the chapter, right? Chapter one. It's a uh, it's one of the bleakest chapters in the whole of the Bible. But where the complacent attempted to think, the Lord is doing nothing. He's not doing anything good. Well, I want to share with you something that in our midst, the Lord is doing something good. The Lord has done in our midst. When I first came back from Australia, a uh, few weeks into uh, my stay in Singapore, Chong came to me and he requested prayer. He requested for me to pray for his mother, who at that time was not a Christian. And so I put it down uh, in my prayer list on my phone and you know, started regularly praying for Ping and Chong's mom. And at, at one point, I admit, I thought... Oh, yeah, what am I praying for her? She's not even, you know, like a church member. But then, you know, I rebuked myself and realized, hey, this is, this is a brother coming to me with this great concern on his heart. And actually, what a privilege. What a privilege it is for me to be asked, right, by Chong to pray for his mother. Okay, and so, okay, I continue. And then at family day, you know, two, three weeks ago, I had a chance to talk to Chong, and then he mentioned that his mother is now a Christian. 
And then I say, hey, you never tell me. I've been praying. Hey, you never tell me when she converted. Then he, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, so he, he told me how she was brought to church or something. And then she, she, she listened and she believed and she wanted to be baptized. And Chong said to me, if you ask anyone, they will tell you, they will say she is a person that they cannot imagine who would become a Christian. But here she is. She's baptized. And Chong tells me every morning he must, because he lives under her, you know, uh, she, she lives above in a, in a flat. He must go upstairs to her flat. Every morning, his mom says, you must come and see me. Do you know why? Because the day before, she's been reading the book. She's been seeking. She's been reading and inquiring. And she wants Chong to come in the morning because she has questions about things she's read in the book. This old lady. Now, just to... As a matter of contrast, I want to tell you about one of the students that visited the Christian group in NTU. She came once and never came back. And she told her friends, it's because, ayah, too intellectual. The, 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 the Bible study too deep. This, this is an undergraduate student. And she, she cannot, you know, give the the brain power and brain effort necessary to, to look at God's Word. Whereas this old lady, now she, she has a hunger for the Word and Chong tells me, one of the ladies from church visits her and says, hey, do you want to go with me visiting other old people? And she's done that. She goes together with this lady from church, visitation. Now this is just evidence that what God has brought about is a new creation. What she was before has been completely changed. She is now a new creation. God is not doing nothing. God is responding to the prayers of His people. God is working and creating something new in the lives of the people who once were destined for hell. The Lord is not doing nothing. He is doing good. And so, let me end with Christian's question. What must I do? Keep reading the book. Because this same book that warns of a judgment to come will also tell us of the way of salvation. And I promise you, keep reading Zephaniah, and when you come to Zephaniah 3, you will see a picture of salvation that is so glorious. You meditate on that. It will begin to demolish and loosen the power, the idols that presently have a hold on your heart. It will demolish those idols. Because we will see a glorious truth. The one that we need rescuing from, the one that's coming in judgment against His people, the one that we need rescuing from, is in fact the one who rescues us. May God help us to see that. Amen.